Paul, you guys gave them a nice hand. Our online family, thank you for being with us today. We are so glad you're worshiping with us. There's a song by Keith Green that just keeps going through my heart today. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. Amen? For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. How many know his eyes are never off of us? Hallelujah. Lord, speak to us today. You have given me a message for this day for everyone that is here. Lord, I know it's not an accident that they're with us today because you brought them here to hear this message. It's a message that you are speaking to this generation, and I praise you, Father. Enable me to speak, and I give you praise. Amen. At the 2012 Democratic National Convention, there, there was a series of boos that dominated that hall. And what they were booing about was two amendments that had been brought to the floor by an ordained minister in the Methodist church to change the Democratic platform. And what those amendments were about, I, I put up on the screen, and I know the print is really small to get them all up there, so I'll, I'll read them to you. But this is what those amendments were. We need a government that stands up for the hopes, values, and interests of the working people and gives everyone willing to work hard the chance to make the most of their God-given potential. Here was the Second Amendment. Jerusalem is and will remain the capital of Israel. The parties have agreed that Jerusalem is a matter for final status negotiations. It should remain an undivided city accessible to peoples of all faiths. Those two amendments brought a loud boo across the congregation. And and they, they voted three times whether to or not to pass these amendments because the chair could not decide what was happening. I, I almost played you the video of it, okay? And he called it because it had to have a two-thirds majority vote for these amendments to be adopted. He called it a two-thirds majority. But there's great doubt. And the booze just resounded. Now... That was the first shot over the bow that something dramatic was changing. And I want to pause here. This is not about politics or one Democratic Party or another. What I'm sharing with you is a dramatic change that has taken place in the American culture. That was in 2012. Okay, In 2012, 19, College Plus did a poll at universities across our nation. Responses to that poll came from men, women, non-binary, Asian, black, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, and Caucasian. 
college students. This poll was published August 28th, 2019 in Market Watch and, and in other publications across the nation. Here was the results. Two-thirds of those students identifying as left-leaning or as a Democrat say the motto, in God we trust, should be removed from all U.S. currency. Those students identifying as conservative or Republicans, 6% say the motto should be removed. This motto has been on our currency since 1938. Just three weeks later, excuse me, not three weeks, three days, just three days later. So that, that poll was published August 28th. August 31st, same year, 2019, in the Carolina Coast online newspaper, they reported, quote, at this summer convention in San Francisco a week ago yesterday, the Democratic National Convention unanimously passed a resolution praising the ideals and principles of, quote, religiously unaffiliated, unquote, Americans as the largest group within the Democratic Party. The resolution says, quote, the religiously unaffiliated demographic has tripled in the last two decades, now representing 25% of the overall American population and 35% of those under the age of 30. And religiously unaffiliated Americans overwhelmingly share the Democratic Party's values with 70% voting for Democrats in 2018. 80% supporting same-sex marriage, 61% saying immigrants make American society stronger, and the religiously unaffiliated demographic represents the largest religious group within the Democratic Party, growing from 19% in 2007 to one in three today. The Democratic Party is an inclusive organization that recognizes that morals, values, and patriotism are not enough to any particular religion and are not necessary, reliant on having a religious worldview at all. And non-religious Americans make up 70% of the electorate in 2018 and have the potential to deliver millions more votes for Democrats in 2020 with targeted outreach to further increase turnout of the non-religious voters, and a record number of openly non-religious candidates are running for public office. So those sharing the Democratic Party's values should advocate for, quote, rational public policy based on sound science and universal humanistic values. The shot over the bow in 2012, seven years later, it's becoming the culture. But watch this. The Blaze reported in August of this year that at the Democratic National Convention, two caucus meetings 
opened with the Pledge of Allegiance, but with them leaving out under God. So instead of saying one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, the Pledge of Allegiance was said one nation, indivisible. They left out under God. Now, here's the curious thing about that. The decision to include that verbiage was made in 1954 through our Congress and Senate and was signed into law by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. At that time, this is a quote from President Eisenhower. From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. Wow, what a declaration by our president. However, 66 years later, we have an entire political party that wants to leave God out of their platform, out of the Pledge of Allegiance, off of our coinage and our currency out of our American culture. They want a culture rooted in science and humanistic values. And they displayed it even in the Democratic National Convention logo. You see it here. And it may not seem like a big deal to you, but when you realize this is a pentagram, your pentagrams, see, they're not only saying we want to leave God out, but they are saying we want to be a culture of witchcraft and sorcery. Unless you think that this is Democrat Party only, I want you to understand that there is an entire movement inside the Republican Party going the same direction. That's a part of the reason that there's such a backlash inside even the Republican Party against our current leadership. Because our current leadership for the first time in 100 years, our current president opened the cabinet to have a Bible study in the White House every week. Since he has been inaugurated in the White House, there has been a Bible study every week in the White House for the first time in 100 years. Not only that, but he has is, he is invited in evangelical Pentecostal pastors to be advisors to him. Pastor Jensen Franklin 
is a very close advisor to him, as is James Robeson, as is Pastor Jeffress from First Baptist Dallas. These men have direct influence. We have a vice president that openly declares that he is charismatic, Pentecostal, baptized, he and his wife, baptized in the Holy Spirit. They pray in their spiritual language. Folks, this, there, is, there is a growing, a growing battle, spiritual battle in this nation that we must recognize that, that the Democratic Party is wanting to move our culture to be a culture that worships Baal and Astarte. You go, come on, really? Yeah, look at their platform. It's, it's pro-abortion. It's pro-infanticide. What do you mean it's pro-infanticide? They want abortion to be right up to the day of birth and conception, that, that the child born can be murdered. They are pro-LGBTQ. All of these things are right out of the Baal Astarte culture from 1500 B.C. The very thing that got Israel into trouble, that caused the prophet Isaiah to write in the 51st chapter God's words that we looked at last week. Three times in that chapter, God said, listen to me. We looked at these last week. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Listen to me, my people. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. We looked at those three statements by God last week. But in that same chapter, three times, God says, awaken. And he repeats it. Awake, awake. God wanted Israel's culture to be woke. But I want to tell you, God's idea of a woke culture is dramatically different from the woke culture that we have in America right now. The whole concept of the awoke culture, when, when it was originally introduced to our culture, here's what it meant. To be aware of facts and issues that are important, especially pertaining to racial issues and social injustice matters. It was introduced to the African-American culture by novelist William Melvin Kelly in his article, If You're Woke, You Dig It. Okay? That was in 1962. That same year, the New York Times published an article of phrases and words you might hear today in Harlem, in which woke appeared in that article. But in 2012, the Marxist organization co-opted 
the term woke. Okay, when those, when those three African-American women founded Black Lives Matter, openly admitting they're trained Marxists. Now, for many people in, in America today, when they hear trained Marxists, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, they maybe attended classes on Marxism or maybe they studied Marxism. That is not what that term means. Trained Marxist means we are trained to organize and to structure to overthrow capital, to the, uh, our, our, our republic, okay? We are a constitutional republic. And a trained Marxist organizes against that, seeking to overthrow it. I wish I could say to our people of color that Black Lives Matter was wanting to do exactly what woke originally meant. But that is not what it means today. When you go back and you study Marxism and communism all the way back to its beginning, clear up through communist China today, you will realize that every nation that has been overtaken by communism, one of the early, early things they did is they would create a racial conflict to weaken that nation and to weaken that culture. There is no one more than your pastors here that want to see racial reconciliation and healing and restoration. We have prayed for that. We have sought for that. We want to see. And, and the key to that, what's the key to that? The love of Almighty God in our heart. Amen? Because how many know God's love, while it, it sees color, it doesn't identify by color. It identifies we're all of the same father. We're all of the same blood. Come on, amen? And, and, we, we, and, and God's love recognizes that, that people of color have different culture and different right? Amen? There's, there is a culture that goes with each of those, the Asian culture, the Latino culture, the African-American culture, and we recognize those cultural differences, but we don't let them divide us by thinking one has more, more value than another. Amen? We, we see because we love with God kind of love, and God kind of love, the first thing it does is give value and worth to the other person. Come on. And that's where racial reconciliation can come. That's why the church must be alive today and awoke. But not in the context that we're seeing in our culture right now that comes out of Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Those concepts of awoke says that a white woman will recognize she's been a woman of privilege and she'll feel guilty about it and in her guilt, she will, she will um, just come under deep condemnation. Awoke white men will realize their white privilege and their dominance as a male. And they will become guilty and they will feel condemnation. And, and we're, we're watching, we're watching this, this, whole, this whole concept of awoke that has been co-opted from its original is damaging, not healing. 
But Almighty God, when he says, awake, awake, we got to recognize what he says. Because the awoke concept that's going on in our culture right now, just share with you one, one place. In Kentucky, Black Lives Matter has so dominated the business communities that they have actually set up a demand of communities that and and they are and they are sending out brigades throughout the cities the major cities in Kentucky particularly in Lexington they are sending out brigades that go to these businesses and say if you're not meeting this compliance then you will suffer and they grade them from A through F they grade them and there are consequences for each level of failure just one example one Cuban man that had a restaurant that served Cuban cuisine, he refused to meet their demands. And the next week, his restaurant was damaged by the brigade that came to punish him for not meeting the demands. See, folks, this isn't, this isn't racial reconciliation. That's not what it's about. And yet, that was the original meaning of woke when you go back to 1962. And that's what's in the hearts, I believe, of many people that are cooperating with BLM because they don't recognize its true roots and its real objective. But I want to give you a higher. Almighty God said, awake, and it's interesting, he said it twice. Awake, awake. Each time he said it twice because he is speaking to a people who are slumbering. And I believe it's God's message to the church right now. Awake! Awake! I want my church woke. And the first thing he said in verse 9, 51 verse 9, when he said, awake, awake, put on strength. Put on strength. Now in that passage, when he talks about putting on strength, he reminds them of how the Spirit of Almighty God strengthened Israel to come out of Egyptian slavery and he brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground. Remember, they, were, they, they had left and they were gathered on the banks of the Red Sea and here came the Egyptian forces and they thought, where are we going to go to? We are blocked by the Red Sea. But Almighty God said to Moses, Moses, don't let that spirit of fear get a hold of them. Stand on that cliff over there and hold up your staff. And he held up his staff out across the Red Sea. And the Spirit of Almighty God made the Red Sea dry ground for them to cross. And then when the Egyptian army followed them, the Red Sea came in and destroyed their enemies. While Israel stood on the east bank and watched their enemies be destroyed. He reminded them of his mighty power, and we could continue on down from that time to right now. Stories of how mighty power of Almighty God broke in. And God is saying to the church today, I want you to rise up in my power and my strength. Come on, awaken, put on strength. How different that is 
from what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, when he was talking about the church of the last days. That whole chapter is about the last days. And he says in verse 5, they will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And see, that's what we see in the church across the American culture today. And that's the great danger. Because while paganism is rising, and while we're seeing even in our political parties a rising of paganism, the church is asleep. And we have a form. We have great music. We have all-star music. We have, we have, we have gold record music. We, we have great stars on TV. But the church is anemic. It has a form but no power. And the Apostle Paul said this to them. He didn't just say having a form of godliness but denying the power there. He said to them, turn away from that. Turn away from that. He is saying, do not let that become who you are. And I'm saying, LFC family and our online family, I am saying, we must turn away from the Laodicean anemic spirit that is in the church today. And the church has to rise up and awaken, awaken, and put on strength. The strength and power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that God gave to his church that we saw in the scripture. The same power that was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter stumbling, always putting his foot in his mouth, Peter that had denied Jesus three times, that same Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people were saved. A few days later, again, strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit, he preached and 5,000 were saved. It was no longer weak, anemic Peter that was cowering in fear. It was mighty, bold Peter that was leading the church. And I say to you today, church, we've got to rise up in this pagan culture, clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and bring the power of the living God so that this generation can see there really is a true living God. Come on, amen? Come on, give him praise. Come on, give him praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Awake, awake. Put on strength. So how do we do this? Well, we've got to become passionate after Holy Spirit. Well, there, there has to be a passion in the heart of God's people for Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm not just religious. I don't just go to church. I don't just read my Bible and pray every day. No, no, no. I am passionately going after Holy Spirit. I am passionately seeking for Holy Spirit to be the guide of my life, to be the strength of my life, to be the one who disciplines me in my life. I want to passionately go after Holy Spirit so he is the one that is leading me every day. I hear his voice, I know his voice, and he gives me the strength to stand every single day. 
passionately going after Holy Spirit. Not casual. Passionately going after Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you, is that your heart? Do you passionately go after Holy Spirit in your life? Are you passionately seeking Holy Spirit in your life? There was a reason that Jesus said to the disciples after he gave them the great commission, but don't go to anything until you've received the promise of the Father. John baptized with water. You will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the scripture says they passionately waited on God. It wasn't casual. It wasn't casual. Online family, listen, this has to become a passion of your life. And if it's not a passion in your heart, you need to spend time praying and saying, God, create in me a passionate desire to learn how to walk with Holy Spirit so that I can put on strength. Because that was Jesus' words. You will receive power after that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I got to passionately go after Holy Spirit. Here's the next thing in verse 17. He said, awake, awake, stand up. Does that sound strange to you? Why would he say stand up? I think for the same reason, worship works better when we stand up than when we're sitting down. Can you worship sitting down? Of course you can. And I know for those of you that are in my age range, sometimes our standing and worshiping can get longer than our legs can endure and our stamina can withstand and so we sit down, and, we, and, and it's just as real as before. Come on, amen, our worship. I, I get that. And I know there are many seniors that go, can't you just shorten that part? And the answer is no. Worship is so critical to our life, amen? So what was he talking about when he said to them, awake, awaken, stand up? It is because a lukewarm, sleepy church is laying down on the job. And that is why in Ephesians chapter 6, he said to them, Stand. And having done all to stand, stand. That you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Come on, stand, church. Come on, stand up. We are not going to lay down. We're going to stand up. Amen. Go ahead, brother. <laughs> Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to stand. Listen, what our culture desperately needs right now is men and women of God who will stand against the evil forces and say, not on my watch. You will not take over our nation. 
pagan culture, you will not take over our nation. Abortion, you will not murder another generation of our children. We are standing and we will not lay down. Just the thought that there are people that somehow think it is okay to take precious life of a preborn and take its life right up to the day of birth. Are you kidding me? Do you know what that kind of a death spirit does to a culture? If you want to know, go back and read again about Germany in the 1930s and 40s. I've been there. I've been to Auschwitz twice. I've seen the results. We do not want that kind of a death culture in America. But the church has got to stand up. But listen, when he said stand up, he wasn't meaning stand up in your own strength. He said stand up and put on the whole armor of God. Not just one or two pieces, put on the whole armor. Come on, put on the whole armor of God. What was he talking about when he said the whole armor of God? He meant put on the belt plate of truth. The, the, the belt of truth. You got to have on the belt of truth because truth is what will hold everything else together. And I want to tell you, we are seeing our nation rapidly go the direction that we talked about last week. They do not want to hear truth. And it says, because they did not love truth, then they went from deception to distortion to delusion. Folks, we are watching our culture on a bullet train into delusion. Really? Really? Someone who came out of the womb, a male, thinks that because he can have a little bit of surgery, that suddenly he becomes a female? And because he emotionally identifies with female, that makes him female? Every woman knows that doesn't work. They don't care how much surgery you have, buddy. You don't have to put up with what I have to put up with every month. You ain't woman. That's a delusion. But we're teaching it now as reality all the way down as young as kindergarten in our public schools. They are learning this delusion. And it's going further and further into our culture, the spirit of delusion. The way we're going to stand against that is we've got to rise up, stand up, church, put on the belt of truth, with the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, with the breastplate of righteousness, listen closely, put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is what will heal our racial issues. Put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then, do what? Take up, above all, the shield of faith. 
that will quench the fiery missiles that come from evil forces. Man, do we need that right now. We need to put up over ourselves. And if you've ever seen some pictures of the old, of the old Roman army that would go forth and they would be surrounded with shields over the top, completely around them. And that's what he's saying. Come on, come on, stand that way. No, no fiery missiles can get in. And that's where we need to be, church. Come on, amen? amen. Put on the helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Which is the Word of God. Put on the whole armor. Stand clothed. Because the weapons of our warfare, they are not fleshly. They are not humanistic. They are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Stand. But then there was more. And it connects directly with the next thing God said in Isaiah 52.1 when he said, awake, awake. He said, put on strength. And clothe yourselves in beauty. See, there was another part of the armor that is almost never talked about. He went on to say, after he said, taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he went on to say, and with all prayer and supplication. In the spirit. That is a part of our armor. Praying and giving supplication in the spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual language. He's talking about praying in tongues. He's talking about what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 before he said, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Before that, he said, and pray in the Spirit because we don't know what to pray for, but Holy Spirit knows the mind and the will of the Father, and he will pray through us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We can't say it in our human language. Have you ever had that time when you just didn't know how to pray? You didn't know what words to use, but your spirit was needing to pray, and you just didn't know how to pray? I got to have a mic. Is it on? Can you hear me? Okay. He's talking about praying in your spiritual language. You, you don't know what to say. You don't know how to say it. You don't know how to pray for it. But Holy Spirit knows the mind and the will of the Father. And He, by spiritual language, a heavenly language, will pray through you when you have the gift of speaking in tongues. That is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were all baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there are people that say, well, but that was just for the day of Pentecost. Stop. Wait a minute. 
When we go over to Acts chapter 8, the next time the apostles came down, laid hands on them, they had been baptized in water, they had been born again, but it said they had not yet received the Spirit of the Lord. That doesn't mean Holy Spirit didn't live in them. They couldn't have been born again without Holy Spirit living in them. They're talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. They laid hands on them, they prayed for them, and there was some sort of supernatural power that made a warlock stop and go, I want that power. Acts chapter 10, just two, two, two chapters later, Peter goes to the Gentiles, and for the first time, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. While he's preaching, they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the, the apostles stepped back and went, wow, can we forbid these to be baptized in water who have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? Here's what he said. For we have heard them speak with other tongues. Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul is in Ephesus, again ministering to, the, to, to, to people, and he finds 12 believers in John the Baptist. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? We've not heard about the Holy Spirit. He taught them about the Holy Spirit, laid hands on them, prayed for them. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Every situation except the one time in Acts chapter 8, it specifically says the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues. People want to take the exception and make that the rule. Well, in chapter 8, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues. But in all the other places, it does. Really? Are you going to take the one exception and make that the rule? Or are we going to go by where everywhere else where it says they spoke in tongues and say, you know what, that's the biblical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is they spoke in other tongues. And that is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. That is why in the book of Jude, in verses 20 and 21, he says to them, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit. Building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Almighty God wants us to understand. He gives us speaking of the tongues not to make us look silly, not to make us look crazy. He gives us the gift of speaking in other tongues because speaking in other tongues is God's way of praying through us, but it's also His way of building us up spiritually. And when we are not exercising that on a regular basis, we are living with less power than God wants us to have as His son and daughter. And it's about this time things start getting really quiet because we have for 20 years in the church not been teaching people the significance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And we have made it almost as if, well, it's optional and it's casual. And I am saying to you, no, it's not optional. It's not casual because the Apostle Paul said that is a part of our armor. And if we're going to stand and be clothed in the whole armor of God, we've got to be clothed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said you will receive power when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And also the Scripture says praying in other tongues is a mighty weapon against the forces of darkness. 
And we must do that. We must use that power to pray against the forces of darkness. And if America ever needed a church baptized in the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues and praying in tongues every day, it is right now. That is how we can counter paganism. Come on, church. Come on. It's not optional. We've got to get passionate about Holy Spirit. We've got to get passionate about being baptized in the Holy Spirit so we have His strength. And we've got to become passionate about standing clothed in the armor of God and using that mighty weapon of praying in other, in other tongues every day, multiple times in the day. Man, I want to tell you, there have been times when just praying and it just dawned on me. I've been preaching like an old-time Pentecostal preacher this morning. <clears throat> I got to tell you, I'm so concerned that we have, we have two decades of the church not emphasizing this. And that's why we're so anemic. That's why we're so sleepy. Awake! Awake! We've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to have praying in other tongues. Because that is what will make a difference. And there have been times when I just have not known how to deal with something. And I've prayed in the Holy Spirit. I've prayed in the Holy Spirit. And I felt the attack break. I have felt the wisdom come. I have heard the voice of Holy Spirit give me words of knowledge into situations that I could not have known with my natural mind. I have watched God set people free. There have been times when praying for people and they were needing, they were needing a victory in their life. It might have been a physical healing might have been a release from a stronghold in their life. And I just began praying in the spiritual language and watched Holy Spirit break that thing for them. And they were set free. Dads, there are times you will not know how to pray for your kids. Grandma and Grandpa, you will not know how to pray for your grandchildren. But Holy Spirit will pray through you. Can I tell you right now, for our cities, from Arlington to Echo, all points in between, Hepner, Lexington, Butter Creek, Hat Rock, if the church will rise up and begin praying in other tongues every day, we will watch the powers of darkness be driven back. And we will not suffer what cities have suffered. We will not see. We will see even greater. If we will start doing that, we will watch reconciliation begin to come into our city at a level that other cities will marvel at. I'm, I'm serious. But the church has got to rise up. We've got to awaken. And we must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Right at this moment, I'm going to 
hand this message off to Pastor Aaron in the fellowship hall. The online family, stay with me right here because I want to share with you a critical opportunity for prayer right now in Jesus' name. Church family, will you stand with me, please? We must, we must, we must become passionate about having Holy Spirit in our life. And we must renounce the spirit and the attitude that, that it is optional in our life. And we must become serious about receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to two people right now. Those that have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life, I want to ask you, is it a fire in your soul? Do you pray in tongues every day and maybe even multiple times throughout the day? Is it a fire in you that burns in you? If not, you need a fresh baptism of Holy Spirit in your life. You need a fresh renewing of the spiritual language in your life that you will begin using every day, multiple times a day. I want to speak to those that have never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it's a gift of God to you. It is a gift just like salvation is a gift. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You'll never get good enough for it. How do you get good enough to receive the perfect person of Holy Spirit? You don't, okay? But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not Holy Spirit coming and living in you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when Almighty God takes your life and immerses you into the Holy Spirit, just like when you were baptized in water and they immersed you into the water. That's what, that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. You're immersed into the Holy Spirit, so He is in you, and He is saturating your life. And Jesus said the initial evidence of that is, out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. And that's what happens as you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Out of your belly just begins to flow this surge and pretty soon your tongue wants to speak in a language it's never spoken before. And that's Holy Spirit baptizing you. Almighty God wants to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You'd say, I want that in my life. I want a fresh baptism or I want to receive the baptism for the first time in my life. Would you meet me down here? I want to pray for you this morning. Would you meet me? I want to, I want to pray for you. I want a fresh baptism. I want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the first time in my life. I want to receive that. As Loretta leads us in worship, you come. You come. Don't 